0: Well, as we enter into the Advent season this morning and begin together what is our last series of messages for 2013, I want to pause at the very end of this year and rewind the tape and run back to the beginning of the year and remind you of how it began and really of what we've been talking about ever since because I want to end the year with the same big idea that we've been developing all year, which is, if you're just joining us that life for the believer in Jesus is mission. And what I mean by that in a nutshell is this, that my life and your life, and not just some part of it that we're comfortable carving out and giving to God, but the whole of it, every moment, every area, every aspect, every category, the entirety of it does not belong to me. If I belong to Christ, it belongs to Him. And the whole of it is given over not to my mission that I can effect for myself and then pursue on my own and hope that Jesus will come along and bless, but instead, it's given over for His mission, which is good news, because that's a better mission. It's a bigger mission. It's an eternal mission. It's not a mission that dies with me. It's a mission that succeeds me eternally. It's the most wondrous thing that you and I could ever have the opportunity of investing any aspect, much less the whole of our lives In And what is the mission in very simple terms? It's to take His gospel mercies, real and practical help to people with real and practical needs, and His gospel message of a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and in nothing and in no one else, to the ends of the earth. Starting where? In our homes with our kids, or maybe for you with your parents. Starting with our husband, with our wife, and then emanating out into our greater family, and then emanating out into the places that we work and go to school, and then emanating out into our social circles and neighborhood, and then emanating out, reverberating through this city that God has placed us dead center in the middle of, and even beyond this city, in places like Haiti, and places like India, places that God has led us strategically as a church to develop partnerships with other really amazing ministries in life for the believer in Jesus' mission. And what I want to do as we close this year is look at that idea through the lens of Christmas, meaning through the lens of the One who is Himself the invisible, eternal God who through a supernatural conception clothed Himself in our humanity and entered into this world as one of us. And who then grew into a man that among many other things gave us statement after statement after statement after statement after statement, telling us in very specific terms why it is that he came into the world on that first Christmas. And we're looking at those statements, for they give us, in some sense, the nature, the essence, the character of the mission that we're to gather up the whole of our lives and say, okay, I'm all in on this. And the first thing that I want us to see this Advent season as we kind of move into it about life as mission through the lens of Christmas, is that this mission that we're called to is a mission of truth. It's a mission of truth lived out, meaning God's truth lived out by who? By the body of Christ in this world. Who is the body of Christ in this world? How is He physically manifested and represented today? It's us. He fills us with His Spirit. And He says, you are my body. Now, live out my truth, but don't just live it out. Shout it out. Speak it out. It is truth that is lived out by you, by me, by us as a community of people and spoken out by us in the midst of a world, okay, which at least today at this point, and certainly in the West, is not even sure that a thing called truth exists. And that just like us, and that's the important part, isn't always interested in hearing the truth. I'm going to tell you straight up, I'm not always interested in hearing the truth because the truth is painful. The truth is inconvenient. The truth calls me at times to do things I don't want to do, to be somebody I don't feel like I can be. To We're not always interested in the truth, and yet we are the ambassadors of truth. We are the emissaries of truth. We are the messengers of God's truth, and we are to message forth His truth, A, by the way we live, and B, by the way that we speak. So I want us to talk about truth today, and I want us to do it pun intended, truthfully. As we move through this message, as we look at this story, not from the beginning of the life of Jesus, but from the end, from the end, I want you to self-consciously be asking yourself, okay, what are the things in my life, in my heart, when I'm really, really honest that I actually value more than God's truth, more than God's truth, who is Jesus, more than God's truth, which is His gospel that is supposed to go out to the entire world, more than the truth of God's Word, which everywhere points me to Him, and in every category of my life comes along and says, look, I I know you think that this is life in this category of your life, but it's not. This is life. It everywhere points me to life. Okay, well, what are the things that I value more than God's truth? And and here's what I want you to do, and you can do it mentally, mentally, I just want you to start making a list. So as we're moving through this message and the spirit comes along and goes, yep, that's you. Just, you know, write it down. And then the next thing. Because we all have one. We begin the Christmas season in John chapter 18, where Jesus, at the very end of his life, looks all the way back to the beginning of his earthly life. He's the pre-existent God, but he did come into the world in space and time. So he looks back on that moment, and he says, Okay, guys, you want to know why I came in? Let me give you the purpose. Here's a purpose statement, and he will tell us in this story why that is. John, who writes down the story, tells us this, beginning in verse 28. He says that then, meaning after the fully grown Jesus who came into the world on that first Christmas had been arrested and falsely accused and charged and tried and convicted, get this, of a capital of offense, of one worthy of death by the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And why? Simple. Because they had a list. They had a list of things that they valued frankly, more than the truth of God, who is Jesus, the truth of the gospel of Jesus, and the truth of God's word that everywhere pointed them well to Jesus and to all the ways of life. Because of their power, which he threatened, because of their position, which he threatened, because of their prestige, which he threatened, the adulation of men that they were not getting with him around, their wealth, which was all tied together in this deal. Because they valued those things, and Jesus was a threat to those things. And incidentally, Jesus is a threat to those things. He just flat out is. He comes to us and says, hey, you know all that stuff? Just put them in there. Put that in the bag. Bring that to me. That's for my mission too. It's subordinate to what I want to do with you. These guys had constructed a life for themselves that Jesus threatened. And so here's what they want to do. Put the truth to death. Then those guys who valued God's truth less than, well, their list, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, where they had spent the whole night fraudulently trying him and finding him guilty, to the governor's headquarters there in Jerusalem, probably to the palace which was occupied, at least in that moment of time, by a man named Pontius Pilate, a man who, by the way, was on the hot seat with the Roman emperor, largely as a result of his previous confrontations with this same group of people who now with Jesus come to him in an uproar. And you have to understand that. There's a dynamic happening here. But why are they even bringing Jesus to Pilate? Because they want to put him to death. And for all of the self-government that they were allowed to initiate and do on their own, the one thing they were not allowed to do was to condemn somebody to death and then actually execute them. They could condemn him to death, but they had to bring him to Pilate, to the Roman government. And the Romans had to put him to death. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate because they want to put the truth to death, and we'll see what Pilate does in a second, but I want you to think about the hostility in that statement. These guys are not just angry with the truth who is Jesus, they want to kill him. That's something. So if you're sitting around thinking, all right, well, what's my list? Because I'm supposed to be writing one. I mean, you know, I want to to write it in invisible ink so nobody can see it, but... I'm supposed to be writing one. Okay, here's a clue. Ask yourself, what is it about God's Word that makes you angry? What is it? What is it you don't want to hear about? What is it that you don't want to talk about? What is it when you go to the Bible, you don't go to that part of the Bible because you know what's in that part of the Bible. You've made that mistake before, and you're not interested in hearing that again. What is it that when I preach on it, you're like, oh, wow. Okay, listen, I know that he has to talk about that every once in a while, but then if I preach on it again and again, even if I preach on it less than did Jesus, percentage-wise, you're kind of upset. What makes you angry in God's Word? Because that is a pretty good clue to at least some of the things, maybe. That should go on your list. And it's funny, we read a story like this, we don't even think in those terms because immediately we alienate ourselves from the religious leaders of the Jews. I mean, they're going to crucify the truth. They're the bad guys. That's not me, right? And we're made of the same clay. Don't run too fast away from them because there are things to be learned in them. There are parts of that part of the story that God could come along in your life and call out things with. So for the religious leaders of the Jews, okay, they had their list, and it included things like prestige and power and position and treasure. And so having fraudulently found Jesus guilty of a crime worthy of death, not being able to actually put him to death, they bring him to Pilate. And we, John tells us in the second part of verse 28 that they bring him to Pilate early in the morning. So they've spent all night with Jesus. It's early in the morning. And then he says that they themselves, when they arrive, did not enter into the governor's headquarters. And here's why. So that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover because according to their law, if they entered the home of a Gentile, Pilate was a Gentile, they would become ceremonially unclean, okay? And that would be a real problem for them because the Passover was that night. They want to participate in the Passover, and in fact, it would be humiliating for them because these are the guys who are going to lead the nation in the Passover. So if they show up unclean, that's an image problem for them. So they won't go in, but I hope you see the irony in that. It's a familiar story. You can run right past these things. You've got to pause and think about it. These guys who want to participate in the Passover are rejecting the true Passover lamb. These guys who want to avoid becoming unclean are rejecting the only one who, in fact, can make them clean. So look then at what they're trading in To keep the things on their list. Sometimes I think we focus on what we would lose. We forget what we would gain. And I think we ought to look at our list from time to time and say, all right, what am I trading in for? I mean, you know, hey, I get to keep this at least, you know, for a little while. But what am I missing out on? What am I losing It's fascinating, you know, when you run back into the Old Testament and you see Moses at the end of his life and he stands before the Israelites, one big last congregational meeting, and he rehearses the law of God, the truth of God with them. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing, in so many words he says, hey guys, in giving you this truth of God, I'm giving you a choice. And it's a choice between blessing and cursing. It's a choice between life and death. And when you look for your blessing outside of Christ and of His Word, of His truth, you will find cursing. And when you look for your life outside of Christ and of His Word, you will find death, which is exactly what these guys find in the end, isn't it? But the question isn't, what will they find in their story? The question is, what am I going to find in my story? What are you going to find in your story? So since these guys won't go inside to see Pilate, John says, verse 29, so Pilate, again, who's on the hot seat, went outside to them. And he said to them, and the language matters... He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And I say that it matters because it's technical legal language by which Pilate is announcing to everybody there that he is opening his own trial and he's going to conduct it. And this outrages these religious leaders who bring Jesus to him. And and, and if I explain it to you, I think you'll understand why. It's outrageous to them because on the previous evening just before they went to arrest Jesus, they came to Pilate. And they filed the legal briefs and documents necessary for then having a hearing before Pilate, in which they outlined the charges already against Jesus, and by which they then asked Pilate for a cohort of soldiers, 200 to 600 soldiers, not a small request, so that they could use the Roman soldiers and employ them in capturing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they know that Pilate already knows the accusations more than that. They know that Pilate already knows that they then took Jesus over to the house of Caiaphas, that they met as the Sanhedrin, as the highest Jewish court in all the land, and heard all the evidence, heard all the testimony, and already condemned him to death. And Pilate knows that they already condemned him to death, that that was their verdict, because otherwise, why would they bring him to them, to Pilate? They're just showing up for him to rubber stamp their decision. And they had every expectation to think that, well, you know, he would in fact do that. But he doesn't like them. And he doesn't trust them. And they don't like and trust him. And so he opens his own trial, and they are incredulous. He says to them, you know, what evidence, what charges do you bring against this man? And they answer him. They don't even answer the question. They just say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What are you doing? What's this all about? Are you kidding with this? We just spent all night dealing with this. And so Pilate said to them, well, okay. Then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, knowing they've already done that. So what is he doing? He's forcing them to admit that they need him. He's making them acknowledge his authority and authority that they don't have. And that's, in fact, what they then do. It says, the Jews said to him resentfully, no doubt, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But notice what John says next, because I think it's really big. He says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. For you see, when the Jews executed somebody, they didn't do it by way of crucifixion. They did it by way of stoning. So that sounds like fun, doesn't it? The Romans, however, did it by way of crucifixion. Another really thrilling way to go. And the point is that Jesus had said, I will be crucified. So then, if what the Jews are doing is fulfilling the word of Jesus, and if what Pilate and the Romans now will do will fulfill the word of Jesus, who's in control? Is it the Jews? Is it Pilate? Or is it Jesus? It's evident, isn't it? And the deal is, he's not just in control of their lives and situations. He's in control of my life and situation and yours. And so if you're still sitting around going, hey, you know, Tom, you asked me to put this list together and I'm writing it in invisible ink, um, and you're still trying to figure out what to put on there, then ask yourself this question, and it's different. This question has to do with his control over your life. What is it about this life that Jesus has designed and given to you? Because he's in control. That makes you angry with him. How do you feel ripped off? How do you feel deprived? What is it that the way He's designed your life, okay, has so threatened something that you so cherish that you're angry about it? What is it? Is it your comfort? And He has designed uncomfortable seasons for you, and maybe you're in the midst of one. Is that it? Is it your wealth? You have less of it than you used to. And because your image and your identity was attached to it, not only has your net worth gone down, your self-worth has gone down. And He's breaking you and calling you to find your identity in Him. But you know what? It's uncomfortable. And there are two ways I can react. I can run to Jesus or I can put my fist in His face. Is it the way that you think that your life was supposed to go? You know, like as you look back on it now and you go, good grief, this is, you know, this is not my beautiful house and so forth. This is not what I thought it would be. Is it that he's deprived you of the kind of life that, in your heart of hearts, if you're really honest, even though you know it violates your good theology, you really deserve? Is that it? What is it about this life that Jesus has designed and given to you because He's in control that makes you angry? And whatever it is, you know, write it in invisible ink or whatever on your list. Put it down. Own it. Consider it and realize that the remedy is not coming to love your comfort or your money or your whatever, your status, whatever it is, less. The remedy is coming to love Jesus more. It's to get rid of the fist in the face and to come to Him in brokenness and repentance. So John tells us, verse 33, that Pilate, having had it out with the religious leaders of the Jews outside of his palace, then entered into his headquarters again, and he called for Jesus to come inside so that he could question him privately. And he said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, where did he get that if not from the legal briefs filed the the night before? I mean, that wasn't part of the conversation, at least in the narrative that we're given And why is that important? It's significant because if there was one thing that the Roman emperor would not tolerate, it was a rival king. Rival kings were executed. It was a very simple equation. And so if that's what Jesus is claiming, Pilate's in a bind. But if not, well, then maybe Pilate can stick his finger in the eye of the Jewish religious leaders anyway. And so Pilate, who is more concerned with his ability to carry out his spite, he's more concerned with his ability to keep his job and save his life than he is with the truth of God who is Jesus Of the gospel, of the word of God, for you see, that's his list, wants to know what the claim really is. He wants to know what he's really working with. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus to come inside with him. And then outside of the presence of Jesus' accusers, he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Because, you know, if that's what you're claiming, I don't have a lot of space here to operate. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say that of your own accord, or did others say that to you about me? In other words, is the Spirit of God revealing to you that I'm not just a king, I'm the king, and I'm not just someone else's king, I'm your king? Or is this an idea that these guys have planted in your head, and you're just trying to flesh it out with me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. So what have you done to cause all of this uproar? I don't care about you. I just care about this situation and what I can do to stick it to these guys, if at all possible. And so Jesus answered and said, my kingdom. And if you're thinking, you realize, hey, wait a minute, if you have a kingdom, then you therefore then must be a king. So he is claiming to be a king. But his kingdom is not a threat to Caesar. He says, My kingdom is not of this world, so Caesar doesn't need to worry about it. And here's the proof If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world, and so therefore it's not advanced by the weaponry of this world. It's not advanced by the sword and the shield and the spear and the horse and the gun and the whatever. Think about the way we seek to advance God's kingdom. And think about what Jesus tells us about how to advance God's kingdom. How is it advanced? It's advanced by God's truth, lived out and spoken out by God's people. It's the sword of the word that Christ and his people wield in the midst of the world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But you've noticed that they're not. They would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews, but, but they didn't. But my kingdom, he says, is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, and it's very awkwardly translated, you say that I am a king. What it means is, you are correct in saying that I am a king. And now let me tell you how I advance my kingdom. He says, for this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world. Now, what is that? That's Christmas. And here's the purpose to bear witness to the truth. The truth about God, Jesus is saying the truth about me. He's saying the truth about the spirit, the truth about sin, the truth about judgment, the truth truth about grace and mercy, the truth about heaven and hell. The truth about what really matters, what life to live for, truth upon truth upon truth upon truth. And then listen to what he says next, because it's at the heart of what we're talking about. He then says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And that doesn't mean hears what I say, understands it intellectually, and goes, I think I get it. To listen to the voice of Jesus is to follow Him. To listen to the voice of Jesus is to put yourself under what He says. To listen to the voice of Jesus is to submit to His truth. It is to live in obedience to His Word. And He doesn't say, you know, almost everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, in fact, like we're up to like 80% this year, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been working on this new marketing plan, and we're re-imaging the whole deal, and we're hoping to capture a greater market share. We're we're shooting for 85% next year, and that's going to be a new record. He says, everyone... 100% of those people who are of the truth, he says, listens to my voice. Now, do we listen perfectly? we get it right every time? No, we don't. And there's grace and mercy for us when we fall. But here's what we don't do. We don't sit down and write our list in invisible ink or invisible ink or keep it mentally or whatever, and then kind of get to the end and go, "Well, look at there; there are all the things I value more than the truth of God and Jesus and everything." And uh, isn't that curious? And we throw it away. We deal with it. The mission that we're on is a mission of truth, but here's the problem, and it's a problem for all of us. We're not always interested in the truth. We're just not. And yet, what we do with the truth really matters. I mean, if you just think about it in terms of these Jewish religious leaders, for example, now, what did all the power and prestige and, you know, personal glory and fame and wealth and adulation of men and all the ego shots and whatever it is that these guys were able to gain or to preserve by crucifying the truth, by putting the truth to death, what has that gained for them in the end? Like, if we could call one of them up from the grave, put him up here on a stool and say, all right, um it's 2013 thank you for learning english you know we're curious what do you think about that decision today it's okay you can say it we all know that we all know it but just you know spit it out what would they say what about Pilate? what do you think he thinks now you think he's thinking man that job was so hugely important that i am eternally grateful that i Crucified the Lord. I saved my rear on that occasion. Lived on to be the governor for a few more years only. Man, sticking it in the eye of the Jewish religious leaders was sweet. I think we need to think in those terms. You know, we've got to stop and say, you know, in the end, what am I going to think? Am I going to get to the end of my life and pass on into eternity wishing that I had invested more of myself, more of my time, for example, in the personal worship practices and the transformational practices of personal worship, of gathering, of plugging in, of serving Christ and building His kingdom with my works and with my mouth? Am I going to wish that I had invested more of me in that, or am I going to pass on into eternity and go, whew, glad I didn't spend any more time on that than I did? Really? Really? Are we going to look at the resources that God gave us? God gave us. And get to the end of our lives and say, you know, I, I'm glad that I was stingy. I, or, or wonder, my goodness, why did I do that? Are we going to get to the end of our lives and pass on into eternity wishing that we had endured more of the discomfort of, of talking to people about Jesus and or maybe going on a short term missions trip or something? I mean, it can be uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. There's no AC in Haiti. It's a bummer. But really, we're saying, oh, I'm I'm, I'm glad I didn't do that. Are we going to get to the end of our lives and pass on into eternity wishing that we had embraced as opportunities the painful, difficult, and uncomfortable things that our all-wise, all-knowing, all-loving sent my Son to die for you, God ordained for our good, for our growth, for our sanctification in this itty-bitty life of ours, and found the redemptive purposes therein? Or will we pass on into eternity thankful that instead we shook our fist in His face and grew bitter?" Will we wish we pursued purity more than pleasure or the other way around, gone deeper into sin or found a way of escape? Will we wish that we had surrendered our lives to Jesus, knowing full well that in that exchange we get His mercy, we get His grace, we get His forgiveness, we get His eternity, we get His heaven, we get His infinite inheritance, we get His family, and that we're brought into the family of God? In other words, we get everything that is His, but knowing also... That He gets more than just our sin and hell, guys. He gets us. He gets everything that is ours. Will we be grateful we didn't? Or thankful we did? You know, it's, it's a curious adventure when you start to think about it all with the end in mind. And then work back to today. And so Jesus says, for this purpose I was born... And for this purpose, I have come into the world That's Christmas to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth deals with their list, listens to my voice. And then Pilate, probably very cynically, said, what is truth? Guys, the mission that we're on is a mission of truth lived out and spoken out starting in our homes and emanating out. It's a different kind of life, manifestly, and on purpose different. It is a life of light. But we're not always interested in God's truth. And so I want to call you at the beginning of the Christmas season then to think about your list. What it is you value more than Christ, more than His gospel mission, more than the things that He says in His Word that are ways of life as opposed to the ways of death. And ask yourself, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to crumple it up and throw it away? Or am I going to come before God and remove my fist and lay myself down before Him in tears and in repentance and say, Lord, forgive me of this And help me learn to love you more than anything or anyone else. Let me become one who truly listens to your voice and experiences the great adventure of the life you've designed for me. That's my hope and prayer for us as a church and for you individually. Okay? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the one who is himself the truth. We thank you for a time of year. God, when we remember your great love, for we see it manifested in our Savior who is Jesus. We thank You for the One who supernaturally took upon Himself our flesh, who walked through this world in which we now inhabit, and who took upon Himself our sin, and who in our place died for us on a cross, receiving the full punishment for what we deserve, and being raised to life on the third day, that we might truly know life. I pray, Lord, that You would set before us your ways of life and death. I pray that you would call us to faith in that Savior, that we might have eternal life. And I pray, God, that you would teach us by your Spirit and in transparent community with each other how to listen to His voice, how to follow Him. I pray that you would give us the grace to lay down our sin, to put down our lists, to take up the means of grace that you've given to us of personal worship and gathering and plugging in and serving and so forth. That we might know to learn, our, to learn to love our Savior more and follow him better. So do these things for your glory, we pray. For the furtherance of your mission, for the building of your kingdom in us and through us. And Lord, for the good of us, your people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.